The Sword in the Stone. You'll follow the adventures and thrills of the daring, brave young Arthur, a boy who wants to be king, and his guide, Merlin, the wise old wizard. <laughs> Hello again folks, and welcome back to Ear Read This. My name's Ash, and today I'm proud as a mustard pot to be talking about a novel I first read and loved as a child. It tells a story you will all be familiar with, the story of how a young boy called Arthur became King of England. But The Sword in the Stone is no chronicle or verse cycle faded with the amber light of age. It is a playful, comic, psychologically minded novel which is, as Heather Worthington has said, unique in its creation of a childhood for the future King Arthur. It was written by T.H. White, originally published in 1938, later becoming the first of five instalments in White's epic, The Once and Future King. We glimpsed King Arthur back in our episode on Geoffrey of Monmouth, whose book, The History of the Kings of Britain, contains one of the first references to him. We've since looked at the alliterative Mort Arthur, published in the early 12th century. In the coming weeks, alongside our episodes on Shakespeare's history plays, we will look at other works featuring King Arthur and Merlin, including the famous Mort d'Arthur, written by Thomas Mallory. Mallory's text is the one on which T.H. White based his own retelling. In White's version, Arthur's beginnings are rather humble. He is the adopted son of Sir Ector and lives in the forest-ringed Castle Sauvage. He is destined to become squire to Sir Ector's son Kay, who was bestowed upon the future King of England the nickname the Wart. Arthur, we are told, admires Kay and is a hero worshipper, a born follower. And yet it is the Wart, not Kay, who first meets the wizard Merlin and later receives tuition from him in kingmanship. These lessons come in the form of conversation and transformation. Arthur is changed into different animals by Merlin so he can witness at first hand, fin and feather, what leadership looks like among other races. White's saga, and especially its first instalment, is widely beloved by readers of all ages. Whether you're a once or future fan of this book, I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and if you'd like to hear more episodes on its sequels, I'd love to continue with the series if there's an appetite for it. You can write to me at earreadthis at gmail.com or follow the podcast on any of our social media accounts. But for now, Adam and I will content ourselves with yanking away at the sword in the stone. Here we are again. Sword in the stone. Sword in the stone. Yeah, so... First of, first of three. First of five. First of five? Yeah, there's five in the... The tetralogy. Annoyingly, it's one of these books that has um, was revised, so the, there uh. are certain scenes missing. For I don't know about your copy, but I've got uh, Once and Future King as one big slab. The one I read was um, Sword in the Stone on its own, so I think I have a pre-editorialized version. So, can I ask, do you, do you have cannibals in yours? No, there are no cannibals in my one. Hmm, because um, there is a scene that involves uh, Morgan Le Fay in a um, Tower of Meat who uh, Wart and Kay and Robin Hood go to mm-hmm. spring people from. It's the scene with the griffin. And originally that was that was cannibals, I think, in there. So I haven't read that version. I've only read the version that comes with the whole Once and Future King. And I, I read it as a kid and absolutely loved it. Um, it's the first book in a long time maybe even the first ever that has been a kind of hey adam read this and <laughs> tell me what you think of it and it was it was good i had i had long meant to get around to reading the whole once and future king yeah what what was your um what had you heard about it before what was your conception of it so i as a child i'd read 
the Michael Morpurgo King Arthur book. Mm. And I'd figured it was more of the same. Yeah, is that is that I remember reading that as a kid as well. Is that, does that involve someone in present day stepping? Yeah, falling they back go on time? like a they go on a walk out into a sort of causeway that's normally underwater, mm. and they're still out there when the tide comes back in, and they're somehow washed back to Arthurian times. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, this is this is quite different. Um, it is. Or this this is definitely the sort of Arthur origin story. Perhaps because it is an origin story, The Sword in the Stone remains the most cheerful and evergreen entry in The Once and Future King. Though Arthur's glorious doom is often referenced, it doesn't overwhelm the sunshine or comedy of the book. We are encouraged, for now, to see the world through a child's eyes, a privilege described here. The wart did not know what Merlin was talking about, but he liked him to talk. He did not like the grown-ups who talked down to him like a baby, but the ones who just went on talking in their usual way leading him to leap along in their wake, jumping at meanings, guessing, clutching at known words, and chuckling at complicated jokes as they suddenly dawned. He had the glee of the porpoise then, pouring and leaping through strange seas. When I poured over the book as a child, what captivated me first of all was the character of Merlin, whose name is here spelt with a Y. Merlin is a baffling, scatological character, prone to fits of anger, explosions of magic, and ruminative beard-munching. The idea of a man living backwards in time was a source of endless fascination. I can remember getting to the end of the book and turning back to the moment where Arthur and Merlin meet for the first time. And seeing that Merlin knows, for him it is the last. He pauses while explaining second sight to look at Arthur in an anxious way. Have I told you this before? No, we only met half an hour ago. So little time to pass, said Merlin, and a big tear ran down to the end of his nose. He wiped it off with his pyjamas and added anxiously. Am I going to tell it to you again? I do not know, said the wart, unless you have not finished telling me yet. Despite the fantastical nature of Merlin's space-time situation, moments like these reflect movingly on the gulf of experience in any relationship between the elderly and the young. Merlin's tears are those of someone who knows simply they won't see a loved one grow old, and Arthur's obliviousness is that of an innocent. And he might be forgiven for being distracted by the delights on show on Merlin's table. The mustard pot got up and walked over to his plate on thin silver legs. Then it uncurled its handles and one handle lifted its lid with exaggerated curtsy, while the other helped him to a generous spoonful. Oh, I love the mustard pot, cried the wart. Wherever did you get it? At this the pot beamed all over its face and began to strut a bit, but Merlin wrapped it on the head with a teaspoon so that it sat down and shut up at once. It's not a bad pot, he said grudgingly only it is inclined to give itself airs. Another major delight reading this book as a child came with the numerous animal transformations and trials, as Merlin shows Arthur life as an ant, a bird of prey, and a fish, all without leaving the little world of the forest sauvage and its castle. That too seems a classic hallmark of children's fiction, finding ways of exploring new worlds without quite leaving the safety of your own. In later novels, as the wart grows up, the demands of being King Arthur lead him away from this enclosed world, and into the legends and stories we know well. It is the moment right at the end of this novel, as he pulls titular sword from titular stone, that effectively draws a line under the privileges of childhood, play, innocence, and safety. According to Ellie McCausland, of all the books in the series, The Sword in the Stone draws least on Mallory. Whilst later instalments expand on pre-existing legendary characters and stories, 
As McCausland says, the sheer volume of new characters and episodes in The Sword in the Stone render it the most inventive of the series in terms of original and additional content. And yet, for all there is to recommend it as a children's novel, The Sword in the Stone has never quite comfortably been thought of one. In fact, a New York Times review in 1939 described it as a fairy tale for adults, and doubtless for certain types of children too. It's true that later instalments grow darker. We go from mustard pots putting on airs in this book to a group of Scots murdering a unicorn in the next. T.H. White's Arthur has few days in the sun, and most of them come during his childhood. Having studied Mallory, White had found that the whole Arthurian story was a regular Greek doom. I like how, in some parts, it is almost perversely accurate. With, how, how do you mean? You can, well, you, you can tell that White knows his shit about medieval history. Oh, yeah. When it comes to some details, but he also doesn't care about making it historically accurate. He, um, he translated a book of medieval taxonomy. Um, I'm not surprised. A kind of medieval bestiary. Do you say bestiary or bestiary? I say bestiary. Bestiary. I think it was that, or a book of, a, yeah, a book, book of taxonomy. But um, mm-hmm. he also hawked, so he knew his shit when it came to hawking, which features quite there's a lot of hawking in this. Yeah, there's a lot of hawking. Bloody I, I, falconry. I love the relationship between people and animals in it, not just Arthur oh, yeah. or Wart, as he's known here, as we should say, getting transformed into fish and so on, but also how it's actually it's a little bit Pullman like, a little bit um, Damon. Yeah. Like how people are kind of paired with animals a little bit. You have Hob the yeah, Hawker. I see that. You have the scene, I've forgotten his name, but the scene with the leader of the hunt. Um, yeah. His relationship with his dogs, which is a bit moving. Pelinor and the questing beast. Merlin with Archimedes the owl. Because um, the, um, the, the, the questing beast thing, mm. you know, you know, the man and his relationship to his prey or vice versa. You know, mm. it's very Moby Dick. Yeah, but uh, I burlesqued a bit, I think. Yeah. By the end of, I mean, maybe not when we first meet him, but, but, but by the end of this book, certainly in the second mm. one, it's become quite explicit that he and the beast um, depend on each other and not in a yeah. grandly um, Melville sort of tragic way, but more yeah. of like a fond <laughs> pining kind of way yeah. which is another way that he i don't know makes makes all that uh dead and dry chivalry stuff yeah. interesting so what the questing beast is what is a leopard uh, it's, lion yeah it's it's it, the beast glatisant is i think how it's uh, okay thinks it's, it's, it's other name um but it's it's the description of it is a little bit uh vague it is kind of cat-like oh, here we go Found a little drawing of him. So he's got a head like a snake. Yeah. The body of a leopard, cloven hooves. I read that as feet of a tart, feet of a heart. Feet of a heart. T.H. White once wrote that he had devoted a quarter of a million words to what can at best be considered a footnote to the older writer. He believed that Mallory had often been misread and that the Victorians in particular had sacrificed the real people of Mallory's story by rendering them into allegorical archetypes. Before and since White wrote his own version, it had been the fashion with Arthurian literature to take into account what White called the muslin dreams of Tennyson, or to look for earlier source material than the Mort d'Arthur. As Elizabeth Brewer says, The Once and Future King is probably the last major retelling of the story based on Mallory, set in the Middle Ages and in the chivalric tradition. Most subsequent writers have gone further back in time to a more primitive age. 
White made extensive character notes for the people in Mallory's story, and his attempts to flesh them out didn't go unnoticed. Ben Ray Redman, writing in 1940, says that Mr. White has dug in the legendary soil of the Mort Dartha for the emotional and psychological roots of its immortal figures. Not content with saying, this is what they did, he has asked, why did they do it? And what did the living mean to them? His answers, given with power and beauty as well as with humorous insight, transform those figures into characters in the fullest meaning of the word. However, despite White's lampooning of chivalric machismo, female characters still remain on the sidelines, as Heather Worthington has said, Following Mallory, White's Arthurian world attempts to embody a masculine domain, where women are figured as either incidental or disruptive. What did you think of the the animal stuff and the trials of um, Arthur? Do you mean all, all of the animals that he's turned into? All the animals he's turned into, yeah. Uh, an ant, a goose. Um, Fish. Badger. Badger, yeah. I'd forgotten about the badger. Yeah, they're... Um... Quite, quite Herculean in the sense that he has trials. Mm-hmm. I didn't know. I didn't know the aspect of the the lost heir of this legend. I didn't know that was a a part. What the succession thing? Yeah, that he yeah. didn't. He didn't know that he was he was Arthur. Oh, that I wasn't see. something I knew going in. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's something that gets. I I think is it. I'm. It's in um, Jeffrey of Monmouth, who we did mm-hmm. recently. He tells the story of. Uh, Pendragon sneaking into Tintagel Castle and uh, in the Merlin has magicked him into resembling Igraine's husband uh, Uh because he's taken a fancy to her. Actually, rather like Edward III, um, who we talked about (laughs) recently as well. And he sleeps with her. Her husband subsequently dies, uh, which is convenient. And the child, who is kind of a, a, a bastard heir, turns out to be Arthur. And yep. he, he, d- he discovers this upsettingly, um, <laughs> which is quite, quite a lot to take on. Um, Where's it going with that? Yeah, I, I love the animal transformations. That was another th- th- thing that I, I just rereading it. I, I couldn't wait to see how that held up because for, for me, that I was I read the whole thing, The Once and Future King. But the th- bit that I remembered the most was these uh, transformations into animals and being kind of taught politics and Mm-hmm. and the uses and traps of power through yes the, the political landscape of fish in the moat even outside of the magical transformations The Sword in the Stone shows a world full of close relationships between humans and animals. The Wart's adventures begin when he attempts to retrieve a lost goshawk. Later on in the story, he sees the Houndsmaster shedding private tears over the loss of one of his dogs. And of course, there is Sir Pellinor, who likewise weeps in remorse when he realises the questing beast has been sick and pining for him after the knight swapped his endless questing for a soft feather bed. And then there's the transformations themselves. The one I remembered most vividly was when Arthur is transformed into a fish and finds himself in the moat of the Castle Sauvage, face to face with the looming bulk of the old despot Mr. P, the ruler of this underwater kingdom. The description of Mr. P as a colossus hoving through his world, a vast ironic mouth, remorseless, disillusioned, logical, predatory, reminded me of one of Ted Hughes's poems about a pike 
in which Hughes shudders at the malevolent aged grin, the grin it was born with, how they move, stunned by their own grandeur, a hundred feet long in their world. What makes the transformation so memorable is how committed White is to the shift in perspective. No sooner than Arthur shrinks down to the size of a fish, he is regarding the four feet long Mr. P as a creature of incalculable weight. The earnestness makes the grandeur of this king of the moat utterly convincing. And Mr. P could be one of Shakespeare's tragic kings in miniature. His face, we hear, is ravaged by all the passions of an absolute monarch, by cruelty, sorrow, age, pride, selfishness, loneliness, and thoughts too strong for individual brains. He was pitiless, but his great jewel of an eye was that of a stricken deer, large, fearful, sensitive, and full of griefs. He made no movement, but looked upon them with his bitter eye. The Shakespearean parallels continue. Later on, when Arthur is turned into a merlin, the bird of prey that is, not the wizard, he enters the mews where the birds he takes hawking are kept, and has to explain what branch of merlins he comes from. The Yorkshire merlins, perhaps, or the muck merlins of the north. Arthur is suddenly like Henry V, stealing disguised among his men on the eve of battle to see what they really think. War and battle isn't far from the minds of these domesticated birds of prey. It is here revealed to Arthur that his favourite hawk, Cully, is quite deranged in the manner of a port-sodden old colonel, muttering to himself, Damned politicians! Damned Bolsheviks! Is this a damned dagger I see before me? As Arthur's eyes adjust to the silvery light in the muse, he's presented with the following tableau. Each hawk or falcon stood in the silver upon one leg, the other tucked up inside the apron of its panel, and each was a motionless statue of a knight in armour. It makes for a rather wonderful mockery of chivalry, implying the birds kept at the Castle Sauvage have somehow inherited or caught a predilection for its excesses. Elsewhere in the novel we see complications and consequences of war. Robin Wood's men are disenfranchised Saxons who revolted under Uther Pendragon's conquest. They cannot guess as they team up with Arthur and Kay that one of them is Uther's illegitimate son. From wars of ancient history to wars of ancient mythology, as Wood's men and the two boys attempt to sneak into Morgan Le Fay's castle. She and her kind, variously and ambiguously described as the good people, fairies and the oldest ones of all, lived in England before the Romans and Saxons. They were here before iron was invented and are somehow allergic to the metal. The Age of Iron was thought to have driven them underground. So despite the fact that Morgan Le Fay is a sinister character and an implied cannibal living in a nauseating castle of meat, she and her kind are positioned in opposition to war. T.H. White had identified the central theme of the Mort d'Arthur as finding an antidote to war, and the purpose of the Wart's transformations is to show him how other kingdoms are affected by it. We've already seen his encounter with the battle-scarred old despot, Mr. P. Later, when turned into an ant, Arthur finds himself in a kind of communist nightmare, and towards the end of the book, he meets a fellow badger, who has written a treatise on how man became master of animals. For my doctor's degree, you know, the badger explains. The story he tells, which is also reminiscent of the work of Ted Hughes, this time his creation stories, tells of how God asked all the animals in embryo form what shape they would like to take. Some asked for feathers, some for claws, some for horns. Finally, the embryo of man said modestly that he'd keep the shape he was given, as God had given it to him, and God probably knew what he was doing. Man was rewarded by God for solving his riddle, but since then, the badger implies, has gone from master of animals to tyrant as evidenced by man's unique love of war. True warfare, the badger points out, is rarer in nature than cannibalism. 
Once again, the future world of King Arthur, the world of knights and battle, is depicted as being worse than the visual abomination of nature that is cannibalism, as represented by Morgan Le Fay's castle. A bacon house of two school ribs, a wattling of tripe, of chitterlings of pigs were made its beautiful rafters, splendid the beams and the pillars of marvellous pork. War couldn't fail to be on the mind of T.H. White, writing in 1938. The year of Munich, as Sylvia Townsend Warner says, and as White's book was accepted for publication on both sides of the Atlantic, fear of war half-choked him when he was fitted with a gas mask. White wrote the next two instalments of The Once and Future King during the war, living in Ireland as a de facto conscientious objector. Although he had written to Siegfried Sassoon to see if the poet could get him a sensible job if this wretched war starts. White found a modern analogy for the bloodthirsty, chivalric knights of the past, as Aaron Isaac Jackson explains. Reinforcing the theme of England's dislocated, illegitimate identity, the patriarchal figures of Sir Ector, Sir Grimor Grummersum, and King Pellinor are nimbly caricatured as the out-of-date, hunting-shooting-fishing public school officer class of pre-1914 England, a caste now facing extinction in the new realities of the interwar world. Have you seen the Disney adaptation? No, I haven't. In fact, I was reading something today and it praised it so highly that I think I actually might. It's good. Yeah. From what I remember watching it as a kid, but not recently, but I remember it being really good and quite dark as well. Is it? Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't pull any punches, despite being a kid's film. And it's an adaptation of just this one. That's just Sword yes. in the Stone. Yeah. Yeah, there was don't think they ever planned to do any sort of sequel to it. Mm. I think what I read was that it was based on that initial version Mm -hmm. uh one of the other things that got revised out of it is uh, a duel between merlin and mim um yeah and is that in yours yes that's in yeah that was in mine oh okay maybe you have got the original well i wonder where the cannibals end up but anyway that's featured in the film and it's excised from the sword in the stone and the version i've got but i I think it might happen later on in the cycle the the version i have is one that i borrowed from my dad okay i'm assuming he got it in the 60s or 70s based on the condition of it Mm. so who knows what multitude of editions are existing and what's in and what's out it's a confusing one because it 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 goes under different titles i mean the third oh no first second rather book is sometimes called the witch in the wood and sometimes called the queen of air and darkness I'd come across it when I looked up stuff after this was as Queen of Air and Darkness. Yeah. Now, if you're new to The Once and Future King, be aware that the text has been printed with various revisions and alterations. Most pertinently for The Sword and the Stone, the revisions concern the scene featuring, depending on your version, Morgan Le Fay or Madame Mim. In the original 1938 text, it was the latter, a beautiful, black-haired, cannibalistic witch who comes close to devouring Kay. Later, the cannibalism was made a little less overt and Madame Mim became an ugly, mustachioed, middle-aged woman called Morgan Le Fay, stripping the episode, as Heather Worthington says, of its sexual connotations in an evident textual repression of feminine power. But alas, the textual revisions don't stop there. The following instalment was originally published in 1939 as the Queen of Air and Darkness, later undergoing major changes and an expansion and receiving the new title, The Witch in the Wood. In 1941, White attempted to have all five books published together in one volume. However, The Book of Merlin, the last novel, was omitted and it was published as a tetralogy. It wasn't until 1958 that The Once and Future King was published in full. Well, there's a, there's a musical based on it as well. Is there really? Camelot is based on it, yeah. Oh, really? Camelot is? Yeah. Huh. 
I knew Pelinor was in Camelot, but I didn't realize it was a TH White um, adaptation. Yeah. That's great. People, people, I think people widely credit the musical as being based on this. Well, I know what the intro sound clip to this episode is going to be. Is he? <laughs> little flourish of Camelot. It's more. Did of... not expect Robin Hood to turn up. Yeah, um, Robin Hood or Robin Wood, as he um, Robin Wood. says he's called. Yeah. There's a quite a lot of uh, interesting anachronism and um, time play going on. We've got Merlin mm-hmm. in the mix, who's born at the end of time and is aging or traveling through it backwards rather. And that was the bit that always, there were two bits that really, really stood out to me as a kid was Merlin being born at the end of the time, end of time. Yeah, which is a great backwards. idea. Yeah, isn't it? Because it means you can get away with him being this kind of genius but and uh, scatterbrain because he, yeah. he doesn't know what yesterday holds and he can only remember uh, tomorrow. Uh, it was that and then um, uh, King Pelinor searching for the questing beast all the time which um, I just loved. But uh, yeah, the an- the anachronism stuff, is it's interesting because there's lots of little sly references into sort of modern day. Uh, yeah. Like he, he gets out of the way quite quickly. I'm just going to call, I'm just going to say that they were drinking port. They weren't. <laughs> but um, this gives you, this gives you the feel. Yeah. That kind of thing. So it's, it's based on Lamort D'Arthur. The, yeah. the story's in, in, contained in Mallory. Uh, but it's sort of set more in Mallory's time um, sure. than in the fifth century when King Arthur was supposed to be uh, around. And I'm I'm not quite sure where Robin Hood. I think I think it's consistent that Robin Hood is around then, as in in the Mallory well, time. Because yeah, um, Robin Hood is supposed to be around the time of Richard the Lionheart's crusade. Can't remember when that is. Richard Lionheart, twelfth uh, century. 12th century yeah so that kind of um if, if, it, if robin hood was around in the 12th century um mm-hmm. it kind of adds up especially since when we do see him um there's already like stories about him you know yeah. he's not uh discovered as it were he was already a sort of legendary figure war according to th white was as much mallory's theme as his own where white branches away from his medieval forebear is in his concentration on time Time, Colin Manlove has said, is at the centre of White's work, as it is only at the end in Mallory. A new reader of The Sword and the Stone will notice this right away upon seeing the book's playful use of anachronism. At the Christmas feast, we hear of the various meats the Castle Sauvage is serving up, boar, pork, venison, but no turkey, because that bird has not been invented yet. References to Sherlock Holmes, Quakers, and plastic surgery abound. When Merlin summons a mulberry tree, it is all the more remarkable, the narrator tells us, since mulberry trees only became popular in the days of Cromwell. According to Alan Lupac, playing with time is part of the very fabric of the once and future king. Perhaps all he could do was play with time, given his source's already confused sense of chronology, something he summarised in a letter. So far as the Mort D'Arthur is concerned... We have a man in 1470 describing events attributed to 479 as if they had taken place in the 12th century. But the Arthurian legend did not stop there. The great Victorian revival of Arthur took hold of the already complicated time sequence, 1470 looking at 479 as if it were the 12th century, and transferred it into a fantastic century which existed nowhere except in the minds of Tennyson and Rossetti and Burne-Jones. Now, when I come upon the scene, I am faced by a composite figure indeed. I have, in the 20th century, to make the best of a 19th century version of the 15th century looking at the 5th century as if it were the 12th. And there were more personal reasons for this web of re-remembering and haywire nostalgias. 
Ellie McCausland describes The Sword in the Stone as White's personal and idealised account of a happy childhood. Compensating for the absence of a good father, White invents one in the form of Merlin. The once and future king as wish-fulfillment narrative adds another level of temporal complexity to White's process. The adult White, burdened by negative childhood memories, attempts to write himself back into the state of childhood, but can only produce a fictional happy childhood through differentiation against adult memories of youthful misery. The author is thus both child and adult simultaneously, constantly defining each state in opposition to the other. I know you're a Terry Pratchett fan, and I haven't read that much, but I was yes. going to ask you, is it similar? Is it... What, the, um, the, the general writing style? Yeah, the comic. And I was thinking particularly in the fusion of genres in that it's fantasy, but there's quite a yes. sci-fi ring to a lot of it. I'm thinking particularly when he goes, turns into an ant and he sees what is pretty much a dystopian robotic. Well, because he, he learns how ants think. Yeah, yeah. You know, where they have their sort of binary code that they speak in of done and not done. Yeah, the only two things they can say. Yeah, I'd, Pratchett like in its way, in the sense that it's neither one thing or the other. Pratchett has his own take on the Arthurian legend in the Discworld books. Oh, really? Where um, they're in the Guards books, um, Carrot is always heavily hinted to be the heir to the throne of Ankh-Morpork, but he doesn't want it. And there's all of these tropes and cliches that turn up, like there's a sort of familial ring that he was found with as a baby, and there's a sword that only he can lift. Mm. And every time one of these things happens, he hides it or breaks it or throws it away so that nobody else can find out. Yeah, no, there's def definitely, Pratchett definitely read Once and Future King mm. at some point. Well, he probably, probably read everything, fantasy and sci-fi, but there's definitely elements. Yeah, there's, uh, from what I remember of, of Pratchett, there's something about the dialogue really reminded, or, or made me yeah. think of him. The sort of gore blimey type of, um, it's quite Python-esque actually, the way, yeah. the, way the knights talk and, and the lowlifes do as well. Um, I mean, it's a great, I, I appreciated more this time around, especially since we're reading stuff like, or yeah. we're going through Mallory and stuff, how, how much he's pastiching all of that. Yeah, because Merlin is definitely a wizard. You know, mm. he's not some mad prophet. No. You know, he's casting spells through keyholes and appearing from dunce hats. Yeah. You know, he's he's a bit of a goofy wizard. A proper, proper wizard. Yeah. Proper silly wizard, yeah. Yeah. And not as much. I mean, he has his moments, but he's he's definitely not the threatening, um, possibly undermining no. figure he is elsewhere. I want to talk a little about the character of Merlin, but have the now familiar wariness I get from time to time on the podcast of attempting to analyse something delightful, something that is best left to recommend itself. So before I gun down the butterfly, I want to quote Merlin in action. Arthur has just sought out the wizard in his tower and wound him up by repeatedly asking to be turned into another animal. Merlin finally cracks. Castor and Pollux, blow me to Bermuda! He exclaimed, and immediately vanished with a frightful roar. The wart was still staring at his tutor's chair in some perplexity a few moments later when Merlin reappeared. He had lost his hat, and his hair and beard were tangled up as if by a hurricane. He sat down again, straightening his gown with trembling fingers. Why did you do that? asked the wart. I did not do it on purpose. Do you mean to say that Castor and Pollux did blow you to Bermuda? Let this be a lesson to you, replied Merlin, not to swear. The comedy and tragedy of Merlin is his being absolutely indecipherable to the medieval mortals around him. 
When Arthur first sees Merlin, he is dragging water out of a well, cursing the fact he doesn't have electricity and running water, and is dressed in a flowing gown with fur tippets, which had the signs of the zodiac embroidered over it, with various cabalistic signs, such as triangles with eyes in them, queer crosses, leaves of trees, bones of birds and animals, and a planetarium whose stars shone like bits of looking-glass with the sun on them. He had a pointed hat like a dunce's cap. In other words, as baffling a mixture of religious, pagan, astrological and nonsensical iconography as you could imagine. Contrary to what Sylvia Townsend Warner said of Merlin, that he shows an ideal old age free from care and the contradiction of circumstance, it is all too easy to see the wizard's cares and troubles. Knowing how everything will play out is a terrible burden, especially when faced with the idealism of the young. He tries gently to moderate Arthur's optimism without ruining his life. Suppose they didn't let you stand against all the evil in the world. I could ask, said the wart. You could ask, repeated Merlin. He thrust the end of his beard in his mouth, stared tragically in the fire and began to munch it fiercely. The wizard himself explains the problem of his condition. You see, one gets confused with time when it is like that. All one's tenses get muddled, for one thing. If you know what is going to happen to people and not what has happened to them, it makes it difficult to prevent it happening if you don't want it to have happened, if you see what I mean. Like drawing in a mirror. White's Merlin and his relationship to time is a direct challenge not only to the open-ended collection of tales that forms the Arthurian canon, but also the promise of Arthur's legend, his destined Christ-like return. As Aaron Isaac Jackson has said, Merlin's linear temporality is at odds with the circularity the Arthurian myth demands. Merlin, ironically, is a demystifying figure, dispelling hope of a resurrection. Yeah, shall we talk about the most famous motif of all? Oh? The, the titular sword in the stone. Yes, let's. Arthur can pull the sword from the stone because he is a pendragon. Who, in, in, in what versions of the legend have you heard about who put the sword in the stone in the first place? Um, good question. I think it's Merlin, isn't it? Some, some versions of the story he gets it from the Lady of the Lake. Because I think I, there's definitely a version where he pulls it from the stone and then in some event or other, he loses it. And the Lady of the Lake gives it back to him and says, don't bloody lose it this time. I think this is definitely, the maybe not the first, but the most famous of the idea of the sort of legendary sword. Where I, I read a really good article a couple of weeks ago about humanity's relationship with the sword. Oh, yeah. Technically, man's favorite weapon for all of time has been the spear. It's a pointy stick, and it keeps people far away from you and dead, which is the two things you want when you're in a fight. <laughs> so most peasantry, when they'd have been fighting, would have had a spear. Mm. But swords suggest class because they're expensive, they're impractical, and you'd have to pay to learn how to use them. So the sword just becomes this sort of glory icon, you know, and power also, and wealth and And it's also going regality. to be more close combat, take a bit yes. more skill. And it'll, Yeah, it's sort, of, it's sort of like the gentlemanly, gentlemanly combat. And I think there's definitely an element of that in the idea of Excalibur. Yeah. This is almost a God-given magical sword that proves Arthur is the best man, you know. In again in Monmouth, there's a whole sequence yeah. of magical swords, but this was definitely the first place I read of kind of named swords. Oh yeah, it's like um, it's it's become a fantasy trope now of 
guy who names his sword. I mean, it's it's one step away from sort of naming your genitals. <laughs> I honestly, I, I think it's an extension of that. I yeah. think I think swords swords and cocks go hand in hand. <laughs> one hand for each. <laughs> that would be intimidating on the battlefield. That would. That's, that's definitely a very berserker. Yeah. Surprised William Wallace didn't go for that. How do you know he didn't? Upon the stone at the end of the novel is written, Whoso pulleth out this sword of this stone and anvil is rightwise king born of all England. Arthur seems to sense the arrival of destiny as he approaches. This is extraordinary, said the ward. I feel strange when I have hold of this sword, and I notice everything much more clearly. Look at the beautiful gargoyles of the church and of the monastery which it belongs to. See how splendidly all the famous banners in the aisle are waving. How nobly that yew holds up the red flakes of its timbers to worship God. How clean the snow is. I can smell something like featherfew and sweet briar. And is that music, I hear? He pulls, and the music plays more strongly. The light all about the churchyard glowed like amethysts, but still the sword is stuck. When he calls out for help from Merlin, animals appear all over the church wall. Put your back into it, said a loose or pike on one of the heraldic banners, as you once did when I was going to snap you up. Today I've talked a lot about my personal nostalgia for this book, always a dangerous feeling when it comes to attempting to recommend something with clear eyes. And as we've seen, something about the stories of King Arthur have always had a nostalgic pull. Edward III attempted to form a new Knights of the Round Table, and John F. Kennedy, whose 20th century court became known as Camelot, used to sing his favourite lines from the musical of the same name. Don't let it be forgot that once there was a spot for one brief shining moment that was known as Camelot. White knew the nostalgic power of Arthurian myth and how it connected to the myth of a long-gone green and pleasant England. Aaron Isaac Jackson sees White's portrayal of Arthur as a critique of Englishness and those nostalgic, stirring invocations of the matter of Britain. The wart is illegitimate. He may be Uther's son, but he is the fruit of an illicit tryst between the King of England and Igraine, a union made only possible by Merlin's deceiving magic. The identity he offers England, founded on the connection of the land and the people, the myth of the green and pleasant land, is thus shown to be an illegitimate one in White's modern England. Undermining the interwar national investment in a pastoral English identity, at one bitterly comic stroke, White's deliberate contraction of Arthur to art and the name's subsequent forging to the wart turns this idea of England into an unsightly growth of dead scar tissue. So, uh, yeah, I, I like the idea of going through these as, as we go through the, the older Arthur stories and, mm-hmm. and seeing what T.H. White, what changes he makes to, um, to how it plays out. The second one is, uh, as you'd expect, a little um, blacker. The first one is definitely yeah. the most innocent with those animal transformations. and tends, tends to go that way. You know, you start with The Hobbit and you get Lord of the Rings. Yeah, but um, it's a very, it's a warped story, the story of Arthur. It's very grim, doom-filled, incesty yeah. type of story. <laughs> so 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 was so were the dark ages. Yeah. Yeah. So um all that's to come. We should definitely talk about Gawain and the Green Knight as well. I just remembered how much I liked that book. Oh yeah, definitely. Which which version of that have you read? Oh god. I have I have no idea. I've read a version. It wasn't very long. That it was is definitely short story length. Yeah. That is the trouble with a lot of this stuff is um in fact this is the perfect this is the perfect example because I, I think this is the first King Arthur thing I read. So for me, this is sort of what feels like the original or the mm. the way this story should be told. But obviously it's it's a, a very much, well, very much a pastiche of 
a lot of the stuff that goes down in Mallory, etc. No, I just like how the Arthur legend endures forever. I think even, you know, in the future, may not even be a, a Briton, but I think the Arthur legend is always going to be retold in some way. You know, the destined king, the yeah. once and future king, you know. I mean, that again, that goes back to um, Monmouth. He set, He lays down the Arthur will return at some point. He, you know, he, he, unlike all of the other kings in Monmouth's history who mm-hmm. just get slaughtered, uh, <laughs> he looks like he's about to die and is so carried off to Avalon. Um, yeah. One day to return. Avalon is an interesting thing to talk about. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe let, should we save that if we if we do keep let's doing T.H. That, White books or it'll come up in Arthur stuff. For now, mm. let's stick to his gloriously innocent, if slightly disturbing at times, childhood, where he <laughs> turns into fishes and... Um, Ants and gooses and goblins and all sorts. And also visits a place made of meat and <laughs> sees a witch churning in lard. That's what everyone thinks when they think King Arthur. That's what everyone thinks when they think about childhood, I think. <laughs> all for those halcyon lard-filled days. Those halcyon la- writhing in lard days. <laughs> <laughs> And that's all we have time for today. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, we'll be back soon with another episode of Ear Read This. In the meantime, if you'd like to get in touch, you can do so by emailing earreadthis at gmail.com or following any of our social media accounts. And if you'd like to listen to exclusive episodes whilst also supporting the podcast, head over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash earreadthis. Until next time, happy reading. Bye.